Christmas, the storm is coming fast, the day will soon be here. When those who are caught unprepared will be the first to fall, that much is clear. Hello and welcome to Physical Attraction, the Tailed Wowkey Specials, where we'll be examining the end of the world, one apocalypse at a time. And survive while there's people crying, people dying everywhere around. Hello, and welcome to this Teotwalki special of Physical Attraction. Now we've got all the way up into our top three, but things start getting more complicated, and I want to explain things in more detail here. So this is going to be another two-part episode, and both of the parts are probably going to be longer than anything we've put out before. So I hope you can tolerate listening to me talk a lot, because uh, you'll need to, we're going to be dealing with the singularity. So I feel like for a lot of physicists and science enthusiasts, they can trace the origins of their passion to reading a hell of a lot of science fiction when they grew up. This is true for me. I loved reading as a teenager, still do, and sci-fi was my favourite genre by a country mile. There's a little room in a little second-hand bookshop in a little town in Wales called Hay on Wye, which was very much like the TARDIS, because it was so much bigger in terms of the book content on the inside than it seemed on the outside, and all of them selling for pennies. It was there that I was introduced to the dystopian futures of 1984 Brave New World Fahrenheit 451, which influenced my thinking so much back then, and ever since, and probably explain why I'm sat here writing to you about the end of the world rather than rainbows and kittens. And like I'm sure some of you did, I read a lot of Isaac Asimov's short stories about the three laws of robotics. Do you remember them all? Rule number one, no robot shall ever harm a human or allow a human to come to harm. Rule number two, robots will obey human orders except where it contradicts law one. And rule number three, robots will defend themselves except where this would contradict law one or law two. And Asimov thought that these three laws would basically ensure harmony between humans and sentient but programmed robots because you can see that under no circumstances can they ever hurt people or allow them to come to harm through inaction. They basically have to be as useful as possible, up to and including the point where they might even dismantle themselves on human orders. And they have to preserve themselves from external threats, as long as it doesn't result in humans coming to harm instead of them. So most of the short stories that Asimov had about the laws of robotics were essentially a sort of look at me, I'm so clever, type of logical mind puzzle. I mean, he wasn't really going for the compelling narratives with well-developed characters. Instead, Asimov put his robots into various complicated scenarios and demonstrated how brilliantly clever his laws were, or where there might be loopholes that people would need to consider. Of course, if you don't like Asimov's laws, you might prefer the satirical version that sci-fi aficionado David Langford proposed. First law. A robot will not harm authorised government personnel, but will terminate intruders with extreme prejudice. Law 2. A robot will obey the orders of authorised personnel, except where such orders conflict with the third law. Law 3. A robot will guard its own existence with lethal anti-personnel weaponry, because a robot is bloody expensive. End quote. So these Asimov books were smart, but the one that really inspired me was one called Blood Music by Greg Bear. I urge you to read this novel. It's just amazing, and rather short for something in such epic scale, it's only about 250 pages long. In the book, 
a maverick biotechnologist creates little biological nanobots that are incredibly advanced, and refuses to destroy them when he's ordered to, preferring to inject his creations into his own body. They quickly evolve, become self-aware, and learn, crucially, to alter their own genetic material. Soon enough, each one has the intelligence of, say, a chimpanzee, but acting together, they have the intelligence far beyond what human capacities can dream of. Driving their own evolution, the creatures, called Noosites, evolve supremely quickly, and begin to improve their creator as well, curing him of physical defects and making him a superior being, both physically and intellectually. Then, it seems, the cells go rogue. They begin infecting other humans and reducing them to a kind of grey gloop, all of the surviving characters are witnessing apocalyptic scenes. The world is being horrendously transformed by this unstoppable infection. You can't outrun it, you can't begin to cure it. Not when every individual cell of the virus that's infecting you is as intelligent as a human, and they're capable of pooling their intelligence into a supercomputer brain. It outwits the humans, it infects the water supplies, it learns to transmit itself from person to person, and it seems like nothing can stop them. Unlike the random destruction of an asteroid, a gamma-ray burst, or a supervolcano, this is an intelligent apocalypse, tailor-made to destroy humanity. As the last few humans are reduced to grey gloop along with everyone else, in all the streets, in all the towns, in all the offices, in all the villages, in all the world, you think you're witnessing a rather grim portent of the dangers of Promethean science. And then, in its last few pages... The book hits you with the most incredible twist. The new sites, the bioviruses, they weren't destroying humanity, but instead preserving it. In their minds, they were upgrading it, enhancing it. They were uploading us to a network. Human intelligences are stored and restored. They ascend to a higher plane, a virtual plane. All humans are freed of need, want and death forever. All humans can interact with and understand each other, and they live as almost omnipotent gods in this virtual universe, capable of nearly anything they could want to do, experiencing whatever they wanted to experience, and cured of all the sicknesses, both medical and psychological, that can make being human such a frustrating experience. They haven't been killed, but saved. If heaven exists, they've been uploaded there. All the meantime, their bodies, grey goo, in the remnants of the cities that they built. That's the vision. That's the twist. And this is what some people think about the reality of the apocalypse that I'm going to call the technological singularity. It doesn't necessarily mean that the end of the world has to happen in a bad way. But it's a teotwauki all the same. Partly because no one knows what could happen. I mean, could AI completely destroy humanity? Or will it save us? Or somewhere in between? And partly because even if the rise of sentient machines creates nothing but benefits for humanity in the long run, it's still the end of the world as we know it. Because once this happens, if it happens, nothing will ever be the same again. So what is the singularity? The idea has been criticised on occasion as being too vague, so I'll try and define it and pin it down a little bit more. In physics, a singularity can be described as a point of infinite density. Some people believe that a singularity is what lies at the heart of a black hole, so there's a point of infinite mass density at the heart of the black hole that gives the black hole its bite, 
the mass that allows it to drag in even photons of light that pass beyond a certain point. In this case, a technological singularity is more like a point of infinite intelligence or intelligence that becomes practically infinite. Imagine an artificial intelligence that has the capacity to improve itself. It understands what sophistication means. It can read and rewrite its own source code. The AI can access its own design, improve it, and in cycles continue to accelerate. It will be able to become more capable, more intelligent, and better at redesigning itself. So you can see what you get here is a sort of exponential growth. The AI can improve itself better, the better it is. The machines, though, will be able to reach the fundamental physical limits on their intelligence very fast, and very quickly, with access to vast computing power. Such a system could suddenly and quickly slip beyond its human controllers, and then, who knows what it will do. In a world that's increasingly automated, with a greater and greater network of smart devices around us, you can imagine that such an artificial intelligence would quickly have real-world power, the ability to infect systems like a virus, the capacity to harness the sum collective knowledge of humanity on the internet at its fingertips. And of course, such a code can produce as many copies of itself as there's space for. The collective intelligence of such a system is limited only by the computing power, so it could become, in a sense, almost infinite. Which is another reason why the technological singularity is similar to a physical singularity, if they are indeed these points of infinite mass at the heart of black holes. Just as we can't see beyond the event horizon and understand what's in the heart of a black hole, in the same way, we can't see beyond the technological singularity and what it might mean. The motives of a sentient, superintelligent AI are hard to define. If you try and program in moral values like Asimov's laws, but the machine has or develops the capacity to rewrite itself, who knows what it might do? So this is actually considered by many futurists and people who study end-of-the-world scenarios to be one of the more plausible ways that humanity could destroy itself. I think maybe everyone watched too many Terminator movies, where Skynet is an artificial intelligence hell-bent on destroying humanity which poses a threat to its existence. But people as diverse as Stephen Hawking and Elon Musk have warned that artificial intelligence could pose a threat to the human race. As well as these, when people from the Future of Humanity Institute at Oxford and the Centre for Existential Threats at Cambridge give their rather grim predictions of civilization making it out of the 21st century. AI development factors in as a pretty big contributor when they give the rough likelihoods of each individual apocalypse. As soon as the robots don't need us, we're gone. And it's a chilling scenario that's fed into an awful lot of sci-fi over the years. But evidently people are starting to take it seriously. And it doesn't take an awful lot of imagination to see how it could happen. So you have to answer two main questions. One of them is, how likely are we to actually develop artificial intelligence? And the other is, how likely is it to genuinely destroy us if we did develop it? Physical attraction has dealt with a kind of artificial intelligence before in our episode Seduced by a Robot, where it looked at chatbots through the ages, and some attempts at neural networks to generate creative-sounding answers. And what you'll realise from this is that we're some distance from truly convincing artificial intelligence yet, even when you're effectively trying to limit that intelligence to interacting with humans. We have seen some completely programmed chatterbots that can read to you from a long list of responses typed in by a human being to respond to individual scenarios. But that's nothing like an actual intelligence. 
Humans aren't born with such responses written into us. Instead, we learn based on a combination of imitation and a reward system. As a baby, you cry, and you're rewarded by obtaining food or attention. Gradually, things become more sophisticated, hopefully, and you learn that good behaviour has its rewards. Eventually, you become sophisticated enough to compose a series of physics-based chat-up line, and the rewards are... Okay, well, maybe it's not a completely flawless process. But neural networks are starting to approximate this process of human learning. You can feed them with a lot of input, and an idea of the framework you might want their responses to take. Some parameters, maybe, for improvement in learning, perhaps. What they mostly do is read back from the same document that you fed into them in the first place, and see whether the responses they're generating resemble it in any way. And so they can produce responses with a degree of creativity that are appropriate to given situations, not just programmed by a human. But this is the creativity of randomness. There's no spark behind it. It's still a long, long way from anything you might call artificial intelligence. Conversational machines like Siri and Cortana can hook up to search engines and databases to answer questions, but try holding a conversation that lasts for longer than a few lines, and you'll also quickly see that they're a long way from Skynet. There's a lot of buzz about the AI platforms that come with humanoid robots, and these robots are becoming more and more impressive. Many of them have quite incredible capacities already. But I feel like it's worth reminding people all the time When they look at robots struggling with things like bipedal locomotion, you know, walking on two feet, it's worth remembering that we as humans are the end product of billions of years of evolution. Our brains, by some measures, have processing powers comparable to some of the more decent supercomputers out there, and even we take months of trying, failing and stumbling to learn to walk. We really are remarkable creatures in so many ways. What we're capable of doing and learning in the sense of moving around, responding to the environment, playing sports even. For robots to achieve this functionality, they need to make millions of calculations. Our squishy, plastic brains with their networks and free associations, they're still outperforming incredibly complicated computers that can do millions of calculations a second. And we are still wonderfully malleable and adaptable, even if it doesn't always feel like it. It may well be that they've far outstripped us in raw calculating power, but AI still lags a long way behind in terms of creating, and in terms of applying its innate capacity to a range of different tasks. So look at a really famous moment in AI development in history, when the deep blue chess computer beat Garry Kasparov in the 90s, and everyone thought, now we have computers that can't just calculate, but they can also strategize, they can also learn. Chess was seen as an intellectual activity, and people thought, now we're getting to the stage where computers are better than humans in terms of their intellect. But actually, what makes humans really special is that our intellect can adapt to so many different situations. The AI chess computer could only play chess. Until they can truly adapt to different situations that they're in, AI is always going to lag behind humans. There are a lot of challenges, though, that even the most advanced AI and computerized systems are a long way from solving. Perhaps the most advanced walking robot out there is Atlas, made by Boston Dynamics. You can see their demo video online, and it's really very impressive. I also like Cassie by Agility Robotics, which is a newer, slightly smaller model that looks a bit like an ostrich. So these machines can begin to walk over rough surfaces and terrain, balance themselves when thrown backwards, 
and sometimes climb stairs. But this piece of kit took years to develop and cost millions of dollars, and its intelligence is severely limited. And you can think of countless tasks involving manual dexterity that humans wouldn't even think twice about, opening a door, lifting a glass, that this state-of-the-art robot probably couldn't manage. You've done a dozen things today that would prove impossible to even this advanced technology. This isn't to dismiss the incredible evolutions and efforts and breakthroughs that have been made in robotics and AI. It's just that we have had a head start of billions of years, and the ruthless process of evolution on our side. So efforts towards robotics and AI are focused on mimicking the best model we have, humans. Ray Kurzweil is one of the best-known writers on the singularity, artificial intelligence, and how things are likely to change in the future. He's best known for successfully predicting many of the technological developments of the past few decades, and he predicts that, by 2045, the singularity will have arrived and rendered the future beyond that almost impossible to understand. In his book, The Singularity is Near, he describes the processes that might one day lead us towards the Holy Grail, a generalised artificial intelligence. AI at the moment is a set of subroutines, really. So the first most basic kind of machine is an automaton. It does what it does regardless, like a clockwork man that you can wind up to go through a series of actions. Then there are machines that you can give commands to, that can carry out a series of different pre-programmed routines. Lots of humanoid robots have been like this. There's always a man behind the curtain who's carefully programmed the behaviour and orders the machine to execute a specific task. Now we're starting to move into the realm of machines that can perceive their environments and respond accordingly. There are robots that can plan routes dynamically and change them according to moving obstacles. And there are algorithms that can learn and make decisions. These are the things that are going to go into self-driving cars, of course. What they need to do is look at the environment, assess which of the situations they're expecting this situation is closest to, and then react accordingly. So maybe it sees someone dressed as a burglar and reports it to the authorities, or it sees a cat and chooses not to gun it down in a hail of robot bullets. Alongside that, there are learning algorithms that can improve at a task. My favourite example of this is the old Atari game Brick Breaker. You probably had it on your phone ten years ago. If you watch the video of a learning algorithm learning to play this, it's, it's really great. All the machine knows is that it needs to maximise its score. At first it moves the paddle randomly. After a few minutes of training it realises that moving the paddle in the direction that hits the ball is a good idea. And after a few hours of training it's playing like a human would. But then a behaviour begins to manifest itself that seems like intelligence. The machine learns that a good strategy to score lots of points is to intentionally tunnel through the rows of bricks, and then, if you're behind the bricks, the ricochet causes many bricks to be destroyed. Yet, as impressive as this is, it's not intelligence. The machine is not thinking, if I do this, then maybe this will happen, and then at testing that hypothesis like a scientist would to determine whether it's true or false. Instead, the machine happens upon a strategy that works and continues to employ it, because it's been taught what a favourable outcome is, and what an unfavourable outcome is. But it doesn't decide what's favourable, and it doesn't really plan how to get there either. It's just feeling about in a big parameter space of possible actions, 
And when it takes an action that causes positive feedback, it pushes that button again and again and again. But it doesn't understand the link between its actions and the positive outcome. And you couldn't use this learning algorithm for anything else without reprogramming the whole thing. The kind of generalised intelligence that we have, which can be applied to lots of different problems and situations, we're nowhere near. But if you think about it, there's not so many differences between this and what we do. Because after all, we too have feedback loops that tell us what a favourable outcome is, and what an unfavourable outcome is. They're called emotions. And in all honesty, I have no idea why so much sci-fi seems to focus on completely emotionless robots. It seems obvious that we will recognise emotional intelligence as a form of intelligence. It's all done subconsciously, of course, but the human feeling of empathy is not uniquely human. It's common to so many different animals. For a start, we notice when it's not present in humans, or when humans are simply trying to simulate it to fit in. And we know that animals feel empathy. So we've seen in experiments, there's a really famous one, that rats, if you cage them in an unpleasantly small confinement, they will often choose to free a fellow rat from a similarly small cage, rather than taking food for themselves. You give the rat a choice between freeing its fellow, or pushing the button for food, and it will usually free its fellow rat first. It's a rudimentary kind of morality and empathy. But why couldn't these behaviours be programmed into an artificial intelligence? And why on earth wouldn't you choose to include them? And then you can imagine some wonderful things. A robot with all the love and care of a human, that, with superior intelligence and emotional intelligence, would be far more perceptive. Sometimes, if you're really good friends with someone, you can almost understand things about them that they don't consciously acknowledge or understand. What of a super-intelligent, super-empathetic robot that had no priorities other than making you happy? Could it be possible that these machines will one day know and understand us better than we know ourselves? Could we prefer them to flawed, selfish human company? And if you do prefer your preferred flawed, selfish human, then what if it were possible to upload their personality to an avatar? One that could resemble them in every possible way, but one that wouldn't die. And if you can do this, where does it leave ethics? Can you copyright your own personality? Is it illegal for someone to clone you without your consent? Do you have ownership over the person you are? Already you can begin to see how the kinds of technology that would be involved in the singularity just throw everything we can possibly understand about the world into complete disarray. Again, as in the case of retreating into a world of virtual reality, the visceral reaction springs up and says, this isn't right, this isn't real, and I won't stand for it. But we have changed our perceptions over the years. We now accept that many people's lives can be improved via the use of medication to adjust their brain chemistry. We are putting more and more trust and faith into intangible algorithms. Of course these things seem ridiculous and absurd now, but a few hundred years ago, it was self-evident to many people that there was a god, that beating your children was a fine and morally correct way to discipline them, and that slavery was totally justified. Our perceptions can change. Factoring this in is one of the most important things you can learn about yourself on a personal level, and probably about human society as a whole. Our perceptions can change. And when the empathetic AIs arrive, and they're so much nicer than humans, are you convinced that you won't be seduced? Here's another valid question. 
What does it mean for something to be real? When I touch someone, or, you know, when I touch an object, what happens? Electrical signals fire in various regions of my brain. And this is really how I perceive everything. This is what generates my chain of thought. The sensation and sound of the keys I'm tapping when I type this script. The room that I can see in my peripheral vision while I read it out to you. The sensation of my body in this chair and the feet on the floor. All of it is just electrical signals firing somewhere in my brain. So here we go. If the brain is in a jar and it's being stimulated in the same way, to me this is completely indistinguishable from reality. Just think about it. As long as all that electricity is buzzing in your brain in the right way, you could be anywhere, doing anything, feeling anything. Is reality for humans a completely subjective experience? And if you had the choice between a world where your physical body, the one that you happen to be born into, suffered and died, or one in which your virtual body, which could be made exactly the same if you wanted, or better, could do whatever you liked, which one would you really choose? Maybe having these physical bodies one day will be viewed as a sad relic of evolution that we can cure in the same way as replacing a hip or filling a tooth. Hence then, returning to try and work out what it is about our brain that's so damn powerful. The reality is that we have supercomputers that are already, in some sense, more powerful than the human brain. But this of course all depends on what you mean by power. Your pocket calculator can do sums that you can never dream of doing in speeds you'll never even begin to approach. But our brains aren't like that. When we ask them to calculate, they're doing so alongside controlling and regulating an incredibly complex machine, the human body. They're accessing multiple areas. They're regulating our internal temperature. They're subconsciously storing information for later. They're operating six sensors at once including the one that lets you know where your limbs are, which roboticists have to work out. It's quite a complex problem. And they're maintaining a personality with memories, feelings, likes, dislikes, and God knows how many song lyrics, all swirling around in the subconscious. Who can possibly say how much computational power that takes? Yet scientists have tried to estimate it. They've tried to express the power of the human brain in terms of raw calculation. It's incredibly difficult, because we don't entirely know what neurons, the basic building blocks of the brain, are, and how they work yet. It seems clear that the key to so much human intelligence is not just in the neurons they have, but the connections, the synapses that they make to each other. Every neuron has a thousand connections to other neurons. In many ways, our brain's amazing power to connect more generally is part of the reason we demonstrate such amazing abilities. So, let's consider a cricketer standing at the batting crease. How is he able to hit the ball? All he can see is the trajectory of the ball. So as Kurzweil and others point out, when we try and hit the ball, we're not solving the problem in the same way as a computer would. A computer would have to calculate the trajectory of the ball by solving some incredibly complicated differential equation, taking into account air resistance and so on, and then solving even more equations to calculate precisely how much force should be applied to the bat and in what direction, to cause the ball's future trajectory to be, let's say, over long on, and not into the hands of a fielder. When a human does that, they don't solve any of these equations. Instead, due to years of experience and connections that have formed in the brain through training and learning, they're translating directly between two languages. They're translating directly between the visual stimulus 
the flight of the ball, into actions in our arms and legs that will cause the ball to be deposited over into the crowd. In my case, it's still no good, and I usually miss the damn thing. But it's clear that this idea, the idea of connections, is key to the human mind and its capacity to operate. And even treating each neuron like a little computer that can carry out certain operations is a vast oversimplification. You can get order of magnitude estimates. Darmendra Moda, whose team attempts to simulate aspects of the human brain by modelling neurons that can form or break connections based on experience, as our brains do in the learning experience, estimates that the human brain has 38 petaflops. That's 38,000 trillion calculations a second of raw computing power. Others have estimated that to simulate a human brain would require one exaflop of computing power. That's a million, million, million calculations a second. By 2020, this may be within the realm of our most powerful supercomputers. It may be possible only then for a supercomputer to approach the raw processing power of your brain. So if that's the case, you should really be prouder of it. One of the key reasons that understanding the brain is so linked to the idea of a technological singularity is something that Kurzweil expounds at length. In his view, in order for us to completely understand the human brain, we can only go so far with non-invasive PET and EEG scans. There are already teams that can scan the entire brains of mice on the resolutions of nanometers, but to do so you have to slice up and destroy the brain, which obviously won't work for humans who want their brains scanned. So what's the solution? Eventually, nanobots, which can cross the blood-brain barrier that keeps our brain largely safe from harmful substances, will be deployed, that could deep-scan the brain and capture every important detail. This is the kind of resolution you'd need to scan someone's brain, because you need not just the neurons, but the connections between them. And amazingly, there are already scientists who are at least thinking about the ways that you might get these nanobots through the blood-brain barrier and into our heads. And once they're there, why limit them to just looking? Why not have them act to improve things? Provide some extra processing power where it's needed. Enhance our intelligence and fix our personality flaws. I mean, I would love a nanobot that could cause me to stop mispronouncing words when I'm recording podcasts. So this is one of the aspects of the singularity that's most interesting to me. Because whenever anyone showed me these visions of technological utopia, I always thought, that's fine, but to get here, you're really extrapolating. What they do is they point to something like Moore's Law in computing power, where the computing power doubles reliably every 18 months or so. And they're saying, look, this is exponentially growing, and therefore computing power will continue to exponentially grow, until eventually we have computers powerful enough to simulate a whole human brain, and then once we've managed that, we have artificial intelligence, which will itself expand exponentially, and you have a technological singularity. But exponential growth is a very risky thing to extrapolate. Take someone who's around in 1969. In the 50s, humans launched the first satellite up into space. In 1961, the first human, Yuri Gagarin, was launched into space. In 1969, people have walked on the moon. If you're sat there in 1969, watching the moon landings, you must be thinking to yourself, in 10 years' time we'll have people on Mars, in 20 years' time we'll have people towards the furthest edges of the solar system, and perhaps in 40 years' time we'll have people in other solar systems around other stars, 
looking for new habitable planets. You might think that. If you extrapolate the exponential growth, it probably makes sense to think that. But of course we know that, in reality, no one has been to the moon for decades. It was wrong to extrapolate the exponential growth in this case. I always thought that the natural resource that would run out and stop the exponential growth of technology would be our intelligence. That is the intellectual capacity of any one person. So think about history. In the Middle Ages, there were people who could study for a number of years and feasibly claim to know everything, or at least they'd know and understand a great deal of what was written and widely available. Now, it's impossible to know everything, just impossible. The only reason we can make any progress at all is that people are incredibly highly specialised to specific individual tasks. You can spend an entire lifetime in one tiny, tiny field of physics, chemistry, biology, linguistics, sociology, psychology, any field really, and you can still only know a tiny fraction of the things that there are to know. You can still only be capable of making contributions to a small area. Even collaboration between humans can only take you so far. And so eventually, I thought, we will saturate, and we'll no longer be able to grow exponentially anymore. After all, if you're dealing with problems that are too difficult for humans to solve or even understand with our dull and limited monkey brains, problems that take decades of dedicated study just to get to the forefront of research, and problems that are so far from our understanding that our intuition and natural insight are completely shot, then maybe the exponential growth will stop. But maybe, to make progress in these problems, we'll have to reach beyond the natural limits of what humans are capable of. And then, it's just like the Malthusian catastrophe we discussed a few episodes ago. Just like the peak oil optimist said. Maybe we solve the problem of limited supply by expanding our own capacity. These problems, they might not be solvable by humans, but what about superhumans? So maybe we should dedicate all of our efforts to trying to enhance ourselves, and leave it to the superhumans to resolve the other issues. But what if the thing that prevents the singularity from happening is the fact that we're not quite smart enough to really understand the complexity of our own brains? What if our inability to enhance ourselves means that there are in fact fundamental limits to how we can change the world? And is it too simplistic to think of the brain purely in terms of processing power? purely in terms of something that can be enhanced, and problems purely as barriers that we have to jump over that can always be solved, providing you have enough intelligence. I don't know. But you can dream of a world where humans, enhanced humans, are better at dealing with the problems we have today than we are. After all, what would you give to have a hundred Einsteins working on the problem of nuclear non-proliferation or climate change? What if everyone could be an Einstein? Another fascinating issue that you've probably thought about at this point. What does it mean to upload someone's brain to make a perfect copy of them? Is this in fact a way of cheating death? Because it seems more like to me anyway that you've created a copy that is identical to you in every way, but that the line of consciousness is unbroken. So the same you that you've always been still exists in your physical body. And when that dies, so do you. It's like an idea you used to hear quite a bit that one way of teleporting someone is to have a machine that scans them in one portal 
transforms them into information, and then recreates them in another location by a sort of biological 3D printer. So you're not being teleported, you're not being moved, but you're being sort of copied to a different location. But then what happens if you destroy the other person, the original person? Are they killed? What if you could atomize someone and teleport each individual atom to recreate them millions of miles away? If the consciousness is interrupted for even a nanosecond, how does it feel? Do you die? Are you still the same person? Is it like sleep? And take another scenario. What if, instead of destructively copying someone all at once, we piece by piece replace them? After all, isn't this the kind of biological regeneration that happens to us all the time? There's that old story about my grandfather's axe. He's replaced the handle, and he's replaced the blade, and he's replaced the handle, and he's replaced the blade. Every piece of it has been replaced many, many times. But it's still the same axe. Is the same true for human consciousness? Are we grandfather's axes? Can your consciousness, the continuity of your life and existence, slowly seep into an improved, immortal form? And how much of this is just the same as destroying yourself? It all comes down to how little we understand death. If death is just a loss of consciousness, then it might not be that different to falling asleep except you don't wake up. There's a symmetry to it, of course, that people talk about, philosophers talk about. The billions of years before I was born, before I became self-aware, these are the mirror image to the billions of years after I die. So we imagine, perhaps, if we don't believe in an afterlife, that there is an endless darkness, an endless blackness, a lack of all sensation. But this is not death. It is meaningless to talk about sensation, or the lack of sensation, after death. What would being uploaded be like? You can get into all kinds of super angsty teenage questions, some of which are daft and pointless but still make you think. But I mean, you can think about if your consciousness was interrupted in the same way every time you sleep, would you know about it? After all, all you know today is that you awoke today with a detailed set of memories that made you feel like you're part of a continuum the same person who lived through yesterday and the day before. But the nature of a good illusion is that it's indistinguishable from reality. The singularity, if it's technologically possible, could change what we understand by what it means to live and what it means to die. Things as fundamental as this. So as you can probably guess, there's just too much material for me to hope to cover it in a single episode. So for now, we'll leave the singularity in the distant or maybe not too distant future and return to it next episode, where I'm going to talk more specifically about how it might cause the end of the world, and how we might be getting closer to the singularity in some ways, and of course whether the whole idea is a little bit overhyped. So thanks for listening to the Teotwalki specials of Physical Attraction. Please spread the good word about the end of the world to your friends, enemies, etc. Find us on Twitter, at PhysicsPod, where we're very active, and Facebook as well, at Physical Attraction, all the usual places. Please, Write a review for us on iTunes and rate us. That helps me get more listeners. And one day I dream my listenership will start to grow exponentially. And inevitably, by the power of E, we will take over the world. I'll see you next week. Until then, stay safe.
Our theme music is Get Ready for the Apocalypse by Astrometrics. <laughs>